everybody, and thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. We're going to dive in again today with one of our books of the Bible, and this one being uh, an unpopular book of the Bible, not one that I've heard much teaching on, and, and I'll confess, not one that I've spent a ton of time in, in my own personal study, but one that as we've prepped for this and have looked back over notes made through the years, has a ton to offer uh, for, for study of the Bible, for understanding God's promises, and what I would, what I would think is going to be the center of, of our discussion, the character of God. Right. One of the things you learn from the book of Nahum is the character of God, and not just the simple God is love, of course he is love, but what is the nature of that love? And you get a very complex picture, a uh, mature picture, of what God is like in this book of Nahum. Now, it's rare for you, I know, less rare for me to look back through notes from what I've taught or what I've studied uh, in the Google Drive and realize I don't even have a folder made for this book (laughs) of the Bible. Uh Literally, we're starting from scratch. Obviously, we've read it before, but I don't think I've ever taught about this. I don't think I've ever studied it in depth before. Uh, What about you? You know, I, I have, but I don't know if I've taught it very much simply because on the surface it doesn't, it seems to be very historical. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I'll give you a little overview of that in a second. But there are, actually are some profound messages in this. Yeah. It's they're a little harder for people to draw out, and you actually have to know a little history to understand yeah. you know, what's happening here. Well, give us a little bit of the background, because this book doesn't do that. It doesn't give you anything. It jumps straight into the oracle concerning Nineveh. And maybe that's where we should start is, if it's an oracle concerning Nineveh, what do we need to know about Nineveh? Nineveh is a city in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and it was one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire. You probably remember it from the story of Jonah. And I want you to think about Jonah happening before this. Mm-hmm. Let's think about Jonah in the past as we come to Nahum. Well, in, in a lot of ways, Nahum is a sequel to the book That's of true. Jonah. If you think right. about Jonah, probably... 150 years, 100 to 150 years before this book. And we're not really sure when this book is written. I know you'll get to this in a minute. There's Uh some historical clues. Right. But if you think about Jonah as the good side of the story of Nineveh, obviously he prophesies, they repent, repent, and things go well for them. Not so well for Jonah, as we'll cover when we get there. But uh, Nahum is now the bad cop of the two books we're going to get almost all negative against Nineveh, which would have made a lot more sense to Israelites because of the history of Nineveh. Right, exactly. The Assyrians, even at the time, Jonah weren't very nice people yeah. I mean, by any means, and yet they repent, and so there's a message there. and We'll get to that in that book. Well, now I want you to fast forward into the 600s. And this century was a big century geopolitically because as you come into the 600s B.C., you have Assyria, the capital Nineveh, as conquering literally the world. I mean, Egypt, the whole known world, they are conquering it and they are brutal. As you end the 600s, in fact, in 612, you'll see the Assyrians, as they get weaker and weaker throughout that century, are going to be conquered by a coalition of the Medes and the Babylonians. And so, about in 612, 
BC. So through that century, you see the fall of their power, and you see the rise of the Babylonians. And that's going to color a lot of this prophetic literature. But basically, think of the Assyrians in the height of their power. And I want to tell you about a king named Ashurbanipal, a very Assyrian name. He ruled from 669 to 626. And things went downhill afterwards, but he was a really powerful guy. He conquered a big portion of Egypt. In fact, he conquered one of the big cities called Thebes. And you'll see that city mentioned in the book of Nahum, in that conquest. And so he conquered the, all the way down into Egypt. But for example, one of the rulers, he, I can tell you so many stories about it, but one of the rulers you captured, he took his knife and stuck it in his chin and made a hole, put a rope through it, chained him up like a dog and kept him in a kennel. Uh, when they went into Egypt, they literally took the captives, they killed them, they flayed their skin off of their bodies, stuck them on spikes as a warning to everybody else, and literally wallpapered part of the city with mm -hmm. their skins. I mean, the brutality is unbelievable. When you and I were in the British Museum, you could see mm -hmm. some of the big carvings of these scenes, yeah. literally, from the Assyrian palaces in Nineveh. And so this is the kind of people that they were, and obviously they had not stayed true to their brief repentance mm -hmm. before. And so as you go through the 600s, the kings of Judah... Israelite kings are trying to somehow deal with this threat. Well, Manasseh, who was not a very good king, yeah. really dealt with it geopolitically, and mm -hmm. he be wanted to become kind of like the Assyrians. Josiah, who takes over in 640, right in the middle of this time period, wants to turn back to the Lord. Mm -hmm. So Nahum enters this scene, and he enters, the book has to have been written somewhere between uh, 663, which is the fall of Thebes, because it's mentioned here, so mm -hmm. it must be after that, and sometime before Assyria fell in 612. I realize mm -hmm. that's not narrowing it down a lot, but basically before the fall, but after their, their high point. Yeah. And Nahum is basically going to come and say, no matter what you might think, God's judgment on you, Assyria, is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful context. And part of it is, when you read the Old Testament, sometimes it's hard to connect what's going on in the Bible with what's going on in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and you hear these names in the Bible, and sometimes, in defense of, of Bible readers, the names in the Bible are different than the names are in history. Right. Sometimes you have different versions, the Hebrew version of their name, or, or whatever. Uh, but this is likely written during the reign of Ashurbanipal. The mm -hmm. most famous and right. powerful king of a, of the Assyrian Empire, like you mentioned in the in the British Museum, they've got a reconstruction of his throne room with these big stone carvings of all. It's it's propaganda, right? Man, to show when you walk in there, this is what's happened to everybody else around, and it's probably going to happen to you too. Another example to tie this in with the Bible is. I can't remember exactly how many generations there are in between, but Ashurbanipal reigns in Assyria in the middle portion, middle half of the 7th century. Right. His grandfather or great-grandfather or predecessor times two uh, through some kind of family relation is Sennacherib, who's another famous mm -hmm. king in the Old Testament. He's the one that besieges Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. And he's the one that makes Nineveh the capital 
of the Assyrian Empire in the year 700. Mm-hmm. Shortly before, 40 years before, uh, we see Ashurbanipal rise to power. Right. Uh, the other thing is, uh, if, if, you're in, if any of our listeners are in Kansas City, in the Nelson Museum in Kansas City, there is one relief from the palace at Nimrud of the right. king Ashurnazipal another relative uh-huh. in the line of kings. Uh, and, and it has a genie, an Assyrian genie, pollinating these flowers. And the, and the cuneiform is talking about how they've conquered the world and you know all, all their uh, press clippings and stuff. And so these are very real historical events. At the time this would have been written, which is somewhere, like you said, but after the fall of Thebes, Somewhere in the middle to 630-ish of the 7th century, this would have been an oracle confronting not just the most powerful nation in the world at this point, but the most powerful man in the world at this point, who would be Ashurbanipal. Right. And this is something that you can read about in history textbooks, not just the Bible. Um, So Nahum is not just saying something that is pertinent to Israelites. Right. What he is saying is, God is going to bring judgment against the most powerful man in the world, who lives in the most powerful city in the world, who commands the most powerful empire in the world. That's who God is going to bring this about concerning. That widens the scope a little bit of what we think about Old Testament prophecy. It does. They were intimately involved with the... Basically, there's a... a an assumption underlying Old Testament prophecy you don't think about it very often. This isn't just a theological thing. It's not like somebody getting up in church and saying, I want to harangue you guys because you need to repent. This is assuming that there's an underlying flow of history mm-hmm. and that God is moving all of history, not just his chosen people, yeah. to a predetermined goal and that he is the Lord over all of that history. Mm-hmm. By the way, the just to keep a theological element, one of the reasons so many of those names, the Assyrian names, are Asher, is Asher was one of the gods, was mm-hmm. the chief god. There's a city named Asher, a city named Nineveh, Nimrud. All of these have been capitals of the Assyrian Empire. But even embedded in his name is the name of his god. Mm-hmm. And the Yahweh, the one true God, is not only judging this man, not only judging this empire, but judging the false gods of this world. Mm-hmm. So there's a deep underlying theme be- beneath this. I'm glad you pointed yeah. that out. Well, it just expands your scope to think about these prophecies in the sense of this isn't just a pro- There are prophecies in the Old Testament that are just, hey, Israelites, you've abandoned God. You're not obeying his promises. Uh-huh. You, guys need to, you guys need to repent and get it in gear. This is not one of those prophecies. Right. This is a prophecy that actually has the scope and the magnitude and the audacity to critique the non-believing world on the basis of what God has said. And this is where I think Christians sell not only Old Testament prophecy, but, but the reign and the rule of Christ short. Right. Is that we don't just believe that God is going to rule over the church and believers, and it's easy to think because the church seems very impotent a lot of times. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and Jesus is clear about this. It's a mustard seed kind of power, but it's power nonetheless that is going to actually rule over the world in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not necessarily going to see it happen, um, 
But what we need to be confident in is that God is not just interested in Christians. He's interested in the whole world. Right. And the nations of the world are actually within the purview of what God is doing on the earth. It's not just... Well, you have the the rich and the famous and the powerful, and they're kind of doing their own thing. Right. And God is just interested in people that don't fall into any of those categories. That's not necessarily true. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar right. in a way that is really astounding to think of as a world leader. He embarrasses Sennacherib in right. the story of Hezekiah. Uh-huh. And here in this book, he is judging and calling out Ashurbanipal. Right. It's it's interesting to think about whether or not Ashurbanipal would have ever heard this uh, or how he would have heard this, but that's certainly the directed, targeted audience. And everybody else is overhearing this oracle from God uh, and learning about God by the way that he's confronting the nations of the world. Right. The fact that if you think about this, this happens in a lifetime. For example, let's suppose you're listening to him in, let's say, 630 B.C., mm-hmm. and you hear this and you go, no, that, yeah. that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in a short 18 years, in 612, mm-hmm. you actually get the report of the battle where literally the Assyrian Empire is conquered. Right. They're gone. Yep. And uh, it's sort of like in my lifetime, I know this is a little before you, the, the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until the speech that Reagan gave, you knew that things were thawing a little, but you thought that wall is always going to be there, and then one day it wasn't. Right. And it's kind of like this, and so there's a sense of a powerful testimony. Mm-hmm. But before you can get to the powerful testimony, you have to be the lone voice crying in the wilderness. Right. And I'm, you know, I don't want this to be a encouragement for for everyone to speak a prophetic word against China, (laughs) although we believe that's within the scope of what God can do. It seems like he's judging China through the underground church right now more than he is uh, the pulpits of the United States, but he can do whatever he wants to do, Uh, and that is not outside of his plan. When we begin to dive into the book itself, it reads very similarly to other Old Testament prophets. It's poetic. It's beautiful, it's metaphorical, mm-hmm. it is cutting. Uh, the first thing I really wanted to point out in this book is the if you just dive into the first five verses, just listen to the power of the language in this section. And then secondly, listen for the way that Nahum is presenting a complex picture of God's nature and his character. This is not a simplistic reductive understanding of who God is. This is a real-world, complex, hard-to-understand nature of God. He says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. 
and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Read correctly, that has to be absolutely terrifying if you're an enemy right. of God. And yet, I'm just struck by the, the uh, juxtaposition that he makes several times in that passage of the Lord is pursuing his enemies, he is angry, he is powerful, he is doing things that are that we would explain as natural phenomena on the earth uh, with his power, and yet the Lord is good, and he's a refuge for those who run to him. Right. And uh, his ways are above our ways, and, and the mountains even quake before him, and everyone heaves before him, says. Yeah. How do you make all of this work together with who God is? Yeah, I think it's it's really a rebuke to our overly simplistic view of God. Sometimes we want to get him down to a manageable size. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reminded of that scene in the uh, Narnia series. Yeah. When they're talking about Aslan, the God figure, the lion. And one of the characters says, uh, you know, so tell me about this Aslan. And he, oh, he's nice, and he's kind, and he's strong. And, oh, so, so he's safe. He said, oh, no, I never said he was safe. Mm-hmm. I said he was good. Right. And that's what you see here is a good God, not a safe God, not a yes. tame God. He's a very unsafe God. Right. And this is highlighting his unsafety. <laughs> yeah. He is not safe for his enemies. He's not safe for the people that have rebelled against him. He's not safe for the peoples of the world, the nations right. of the world. Certainly not safe for the people of Nineveh at this point. Um, we tend to think of God as one or the other. And probably most people are, are find themselves gravitating towards one or the other. Right. You either intuitively understand God as wrathful and uh, willing to punish and mm-hmm. looking for his enemies to chase them into darkness. And you've probably felt that darkness. Uh, and then there are people who, who more immediately understand the loving nature of God, the understanding and forgiving and slow to anger and abounding right. in love qualities of God. It's very difficult in the Christian life to understand both. Uh-huh. That God will bring justice to his enemies and that he does have enemies, very real enemies. Right. Uh, that it's possible for a human to be the enemy of God. Uh-huh. And at the same time that he is going to be just and good and he is for us and he is working things for our good, he cares about us, he's mm-hmm. forgiving, it's very difficult to bring both of those two things together in the Christian life. And yet here's this is what Nahum is doing. Right, that's exactly right. He's giving us a well-rounded view of God. I think uh, you know, Cliff Sanders has written a book on that, some of the common... You could say misconceptions of God. Sometimes they're not untrue. They're simply one-dimensional views of mm-hmm. God, which brings its own sense of it's untrue in the sense that it's not complete. Right. So is God wrathful? Well, yes, and rightfully so. And matter of fact, we would demand that he be wrathful against injustice. And, mm-hmm. and uh, On the other hand, is God merciful and caring and forgiving even to those we don't think are worthy of mm-hmm. forgiving? Well, in fact, he is. And we do get these one-dimensional views of God instead of letting God be who he wants to be. And that's part of the reason of the whole Bible, Nahum's portion of it here, Mm -hmm. is to tell us who is this God who made us, who loved us, and uh, who is going to preserve us from his wrath through faith in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes we want to create God instead of allowing God to be who he wants to be. Definitely. I think that's a, that is a very difficult thing to understand. 
as you read through the book of Nahum, one of the unique things is there's no prophecy of blessing in the book of Nahum. It's all negative. Uh-huh. And one of the things that's really hard to stomach in Nahum, and you see this in, in a couple of other places, is that the time for repentance has actually passed at this point. So there's not an opportunity for the Assyrians to avert the uh, judgment that is coming for them. Right. Instead, what he paints a picture of is real wrath on account of wrongdoing. And he's holding the nations accountable for their wrongdoing as well. And so one of the things that, that we see there is repentance for us is a, we take it for granted. It's like, well, you can right. repent. And, and, and we, we trounce on repentance in American Christianity. If we're going to start pointing fingers at misunderstandings, one of them would be that repentance is taken with very little thought and very little gratefulness. Uh-huh. Uh, outside of those who truly understand and have truly repented, you see a very free, non-costly grace preached in a lot of American churches. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, the reason you don't see that in a lot of third world countries, is because they understand what it's like to live in a place where there is actually no hope. Right. We are so conditioned to believe in hope that actually hope is our default. Right. It's very difficult for us to imagine what it would be like to feel the weight of hopelessness when it comes to God and his kingdom and the future and judgment. And uh, for, for, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, you had to have had a moment like that in order to repent. But our default then is to forget that and move straight to hope is always the default. But what he's writing about here is a world where there is not much hope. And it's against that backdrop that you get this picture of what it truly means to repent and be forgiven, to have good news, to have a sense of hope. Uh You have to have the reality of judgment and wrath and anger from God in order to understand what hope and repentance truly look like. That's a powerful point. We we sometimes have a hard time coming to faith, I think, because we don't understand that. Just like you said, this is a great book where Nahum himself is completely powerless. Mm-hmm. Politically, they are powerless. Mm-hmm. And yet, he's pronouncing, boldly pronouncing. And by the way, everywhere in here it says Lord when you read that. That's the translators putting in the name of Yahweh. Right. So it's Yahweh, Asherbanipal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not Asher. It's Yahweh who is yes. pronouncing this judgment on you. You know, if you read this, I would urge people to read this and then read Habakkuk. Mm-hmm. Habakkuk, I'm skipping to another book here just a little bit, but another minor prophet is writing just about this same time. And he starts out by saying, what you're talking about, hopelessness, how long, O oh Lord, will you look on this kind of injustice and do nothing? Mm-hmm. And God says, oh, I'm not going to do nothing. I'm raising up the Babylonians to destroy these Assyrians. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen in a few mm-hmm. years. But you get the sense of Nahum of righteous, God's righteous judgment on a powerful foe. In Habakkuk, you see the answer to his question. I know they seem powerful. I know you seem powerless, but I am not powerless. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I do think, and this was true for me, I had to come to a point where I realized I'm not in control. Mm -hmm. I don't have an endless reservoir of hope. 
relying on myself before I could really appreciate the idea of repentance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the interpretive tools I would suggest coming from this book is it's always important to look and see how this book is treated elsewhere in Scripture. Yes. Um, and you can get into a lot of really helpful ways that the Bible interprets itself. And that's one of the things we have going on here is Nahum is only quoted one other time in Scripture in the New Testament. And uh, it's chapter 1, verse 15 is quoted in Romans 10, verse 15. And it's on this exact same point that we're talking about, which is why I think we've zeroed in to say, if we want to take something away from this book, this is, this is it. Uh, this is what Paul takes away. Uh, it's the only time he quotes from it. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And then he gives an exhortation to keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Paul quotes this verse right next to the passage where he says, uh, and how can they hear if no one, nobody preaches? And how can they preach if no one is sent? And, you know, mm-hmm. how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Talking about how the gospel goes forth to yeah. the nations. And that's the backdrop of the character of God in Nahum put into a New Testament context. The wrath of God against his enemies and how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to the hopeless, to the oppressed, to the enemies of God. Paul is talking about basically what we would consider frontline mission work in that passage of uh-huh. whether it's to the Jews, whether it's to unreached peoples, the gospel has to go forward. The gospel is words. God sends people to preach. And when people preach the gospel, there's this sense of relief from a Nahum-like existence uh, where there really is no hope, there really is the presence of the wrath of God. And now you get this message where Paul says, the beauty of the feet of those who bring good news, uh, like someone who's announcing the end of a war uh, that, that you have just won, or that you're no longer going to be conquered, uh, whereas you were before. That's the interpretation we get of Nahum. Well, and let me point this out. In Nahum, that verse is used... Of the good, what is the good news? The good news is God's wrath will be fulfilled in mm-hmm. judgment against those who have hurt you so badly. Mm. He will do justice. Yeah, that's good news if you're the one whose family has been killed, who's mm-hmm. starving because of this. And in uh, the book of Romans, Paul's using it to say the good news is the hope of delivery from that wrath. Right. That Jesus Christ has made a way that we can be delivered from this wrath. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of the hope and the good news of the gospel it, it intertwines judgment and salvation because mm-hmm. neither has neither of those is the gospel by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both, both sides of those need to be true. And we need to come to the understanding that God can be glorified both in wrath and justice mm-hmm. and through forgiveness and mercy and justice. That those are both part of what God is doing in making the world right. Uh, The book of Nahum ends on a pretty strong note. Uh, The last paragraph here, chapter 3, verse 18, he's talking to Ashurbanipal at this point. He's talking to uh, Nineveh. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. 
There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is just a fun fact, and it goes back maybe as a memory device to what we talked about earlier. There are only two books in the Bible that end with a question, and they are the part one and part two series of Jonah and Nathan. That is a great observation. Um, That's true. You know, Jonah ends with, and much cattle, you know, kind of abruptly, Uh, whereas this one puts the point a little bit more forcefully. Uh, Who in all the world is not going to be happy when you guys are gone. Right. Because who in the world has not been affected by your evil? That's yeah. the question that, that he poses at the end of this book to the king of Assyria. But yeah, those are the two books that end with a question in, in the Bible. And uh, easy to remember that they're both to Nineveh. Right. One of them about repentance, one of them about judgment. Right. One of them where it's like, how can I not say the people who repent? Right. Even down to the cattle. Even if they don't look you know, like they deserve it. Yes, right. right. Even, you know, how, however many people there are in the city and many cattle. Versus here where he says, who in all the world hasn't been affected by the evil of this place? Right. And so I'm going to judge it. And if anything, you get a nice picture of the two things that we've been discussing through this book. The wrath of God and the mercy of God. That those are both part of his character. They're not competing interests. Right. They are one and the same interest on God's part. Bringing justice to the world requires that he does both. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.